Welcome to the Bully Pulpit from the University of Southern California Center for the Political Future. Our podcast brings together America's top politicians, journalists, academics, and strategists from across the political spectrum for discussions on hot-button issues where we respect each other and respect the truth. We hope you enjoy these conversations. Good afternoon. I'm Bob Shrum, the director of the Center for the Political Future at USC Dornsife. Uh, Welcome to this next program in our series, The Bully Pulpit, a session on, quote, the 74 million voter question. Why did Donald Trump get so many votes? Let me express our gratitude to our guests and introduce them. Uh, Thomas Frank is a political analyst, a historian, and a writer, the founder of Baffler Magazine, and the author of a famous and landmark book, What's the Matter with Kansas, a New York Times bestseller. His new book, which I hope we'll touch on today, in fact, we will touch on it, is entitled The People Know, A Brief History of Anti-Populism. Theodore Johnson is a senior fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice at NYU. Ted's work explores the role of race in politics, issue framing, and policy outcomes. His forthcoming book is entitled When the Stars Begin to Fall, Overcoming Racism and Renewing the Promise of America. Pat Griffin is a strategist. He's been a fellow at the center. He's a legend in New Hampshire Republican politics, and I'm so glad to welcome him back. Mimi Walters is a former U.S. representative for California's 45th Congressional District, a veteran of the California State Senate and Assembly, and the former mayor of Laguna Niguel. I'm proud, too, that she was one of our center fellows last semester. We're going to have a free-flowing discussion for about 45 minutes, then a half hour of Q&A from the audience. Let me start with this, and we can just go around. I think a lot of Democrats were shocked that 74 million voters supported Trump after four years of what they saw as a chaotic presidency. How much were they motivated by economic anxiety, by the changing demographics of the country, and by a simple impulse to prevent the so-called libs from regaining power? Who wants to start with that? I think that... If the Democrats were surprised, they should not have been. This has been a four years of discontent. Donald Trump is largely responsible for doing precisely what he said he would do, which is to disrupt any sense of normalcy in our politics. The fact of the matter is that Trump got himself through four years. And while many Trump policies were, at least from this Republican standpoint, very effective, Trump the person became the problem. Trump the disruptor disrupted everything and anything that suggested a sense of normalcy about us, including, as it turns out, on January 6th, when he did, in fact, in my estimation, initiate the activity that led to the invasion of the Capitol, which uh, by almost any measure is insurrection. Whether or not the Senate uh, decides that is, is, is yet to be determined, I don't think they will. But I do think that Donald Trump was at least from an elective standpoint, the right person at the right time running against precisely the right opponent in Hillary Clinton, at least when he was first elected, to kind of hit the lottery, if you will, and wind up becoming president. The one thing that I would just add is, I don't know that you hit the lottery twice. It's possible, but it's not likely. I would just tell you that whether the Senate votes to convict Trump or they let Trump slither away into this swamp of uh, Florida here and, and, and cause trouble and mayhem here, 
which, by the way, he will do, no matter what the Senate does. Donald Trump is not going away. He'll very likely run for president again. And if he doesn't, we could certainly wind up with either a member of his family or party primary challenges to incumbent Republicans, many of whom may be safe, which is going to spell disaster for Republicans in the midterm. So the fact of the matter is Trump did this once. He almost did it a second time. To your question and your point, how did that happen in spite of Donald Trump being his own worst enemy as a person? And the answer is he ran against an almost another perfect candidate in Joe Biden and the Democrats this time around. It'll be interesting to see as we get to the midterms whether or not Democrat overreach, which is what I seem to be seeing from this president and his party, allows Trump or someone like him to slither back. Ted or Thomas Frank, do you want to take that and then we'll come to Mimi? Yeah, absolutely. So I I absolutely agree that Democrats should not have been surprised that the election was as close as it was or that 74 million Americans voted for the sitting president to be reelected. This is par for the course. Sitting presidents almost always have an advantage. The question is, why why did that surprise happen? Here's the thing. America is evenly divided between the parties. Um, Even when you consider the 100 million Americans that do not vote, when they're polled or when surveys are done, it shows that their political leanings look very much like the people who do vote, which is to say those who sit on the sidelines aren't a bunch of Democrats who are not participating or a bunch of Republicans not participating. They're just Americans who aren't engaging in the civic process, but they, their leanings are just like the Americans who do. So the fact that this election was really decided by 43,000 votes over three states and the Electoral College was closer than many thought it would be is not a symbol that Donald Trump was an outstanding president or that Joe Biden was a great candidate or a bad president, bad candidate. It is a signal that the nation is evenly divided between the parties and that partisan identities are uh, so sticky nowadays that the policy agenda, the state of the economy, things happening in the country are the candidates are less likely to pay a price for those things than, than uh, in, in days past. The one caveat is there was a 7 million popular vote gap between Joe Biden and Donald Trump and 5 million in 2016. This is important if the popular vote determined who the president was. It does not. We have the Electoral College. So given the system that we have, we have an evenly divided country in which a president can win based on 43,000 votes this time and Trump won by 70-some thousand votes last time. That is the future of electoral politics in the near term for the American uh, democracy. And politicians' campaigns will have to learn how to operate within these constraints and, uh, and recognize the power of the partisan pull on voters' behavior. Yeah, I'm going to get to the larger context of all this in a minute with uh, Thomas Frank, but uh, Mimi Walters, I'd, I'd like to ask you, you could have been on the House floor on January 6th very easily. Do you think that Pat Griffin is right that that insurrection at the Capitol and the subsequent impeachment of Trump will have a longer term impact in the midterms and the next general election on, on Republican votes? I'm not sure that it will. I think it's a very long time between now and 2022. And we know in our country, things change on a dime. So I think 2022 actually looks very good for Republicans. Listen, the House picked up 12 seats on the Republican side in this last election and Trump lost. And all the pundits were saying that Democrats were going to pick up 10 to 20 seats. 
And Republicans came very close to taking back the majority. And I think they're in a very good position to take it back in 2022. And as soon as this impeachment trial is over with, uh, I think it will be put behind us and uh, Republicans will be able to coalesce together and move forward to the next election. Thomas Frank, you can comment on any of this, but I also hope you can put it in a kind of larger context. Let me ask you what you mean by the people know and anti-populism and right. how, how it somehow or other frames the discussion we're having. So I, I want to point out, first of all, that it, it, you know, the repudiation of presidents is something that we've all seen before. It does happen. And I thought it would happen this time. We saw it happen to Jimmy Carter. We saw it happen to George Bush Sr. We saw it happen to George Bush Jr. when he finally left office. These are people that the country turned against in a massive way. And it didn't happen with Donald Trump, although in my opinion, it, uh, he, he, he richly deserved it after, you know, because of his, among other things, his disastrous leadership on the COVID epidemic. Uh, this, uh, you know, this country should have repudiated that guy. And so that's the, that's the question. What happened? Why didn't this uh, mechanism work the way it always does? And I'm going to suggest something that I don't think I've heard anybody talk about anywhere, <laughs> which is that we're in, we're, we're seeing the, um, the effects of a much larger sea, sort of a sea change in American politics, where the two parties are, are uh, sort of changing their, um, what would you say, their social position, their class position. And one of the things that I saw in 2020, and to some degree in 2016 as well, and I have never seen before in my life, was this coming together of the nation's elites and what I call a coalition of the aghast. This is one of my sort of humorous terms for it, but I've never seen anything like this with, with the, uh, the sort of professional white collar class, totally unified against the Republican wall street donating overwhelmingly to the Democrat. There's some wall street people that are still on Trump's side, of course, Silicon Valley with the Democrats, the entire culture industry with the Democrats and uh, what makes it especially strange to see the military industrial complex largely siding with the Democrats as well. I'd I have never seen anything like this in my life. You add to that this emphasis in the last year or so about suppressing certain kinds of, of expression, especially online, encouraging Facebook and Twitter to censor people. And you're seeing a, the rise of a kind of a democratic coalition uh, now, I do have a historical reference for, for this, but nobody, nobody on this panel is old enough to remember it. But you're seeing a coming together of the upper class of this country in a way that is, frankly, rubs people the wrong way. When you go out and tell people that the, you know, what, are, you know, what, what being a liberal is all about is obeying credentialed authority, that's going to piss people off. That's anti-populism. That's sort of what I mean by anti-populism. And the only example I could come up with that's even close to this is in 1936, when the sort of elite of America came together against Franklin Roosevelt in the most incredible way, you know, the bankrolled by the DuPont family, or called the American Liberty League, but it was, you know, the, the America's leading lawyers, its economists. Well, led, by, led by Al Smith, who it Right, yeah, he was a figurehead, that's right. <laughs> had been, like the Lincoln Project, it's the, it's the exact same thing all over again, only the other way around, right, in partisan terms. And, and of course, the industrialists, and, and then most importantly of all, the newspaper barons of the day, they absolutely hated Roosevelt. And, uh, and Roosevelt beat them in this, in, in, in this you know, incredible landslide, okay? So 
Roosevelt was for real. Roosevelt was a successful president. Roosevelt had delivered great things. Trump hasn't done any of that. So after the dust settled in 1936, people did studies of this, you know, the kind of studies they did back then, which were not scientific. And, and they said, you look at the cities, and by, by the way, I apologize for talking too much, but this is, I think this is really interesting. You look at the cities where Roosevelt didn't have a single newspaper on his side. Well, you know, back then cities would have more than one paper and they would all be against him in a given city. And he would do better in those cities than he would in the places where he actually had newspapers, some newspapers supporting him. And the conclusion was that people were lashing out against this coalition of elites as much as they were voting for, for FDR himself, which is, okay, admittedly, this is a unique take on the election, but I'm sticking with it. So you think people just wanted to own the libs? And only well, I, I would, I would, I would be, I would be slightly more sophisticated about it because, look, I am a, I am a lib, <laughs> and 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 I to this day, I think, I think a lot of this was Joe Biden, uh, in some ways, rescued the Democratic Party this time around because he's clearly not part of what I just described. This kind of professional class. Uh, this sort of uh, uh, snobbish Democratic bow down before my credentials kind of appeal. That's not Joe Biden. But I think that with all of these things, there's this kind of shadowy culture wars where we, you know, we all feel offended all the time. We're all pissed off all the time. We turn on the TV. It makes us mad. What amazes me is that this stuff goes on even when you've got a genuine national crisis in the, in the you know, something real that's, that's destroying our lives, you know, killing people, COVID. Uh, how would any of you react to that? You don't have to if you don't have a view, but I, I think it's a very interesting take. Bob, I think that Tom makes some very, very good points. As someone who was never really for Trump, and you know my pedigree, Bob, I was a, a George H.W. Bush guy, a George W. Bush guy. Uh, Murphy and I worked for Jeb Bush, uh, which only shows you that if you want to spend $150 million, we're the guys to hire to lose an election. <laughs> the bottom line in all of this is that I think that to dismiss the perception of what Trump did is a mistake. Because I don't say this as a Trump lover, I say this as someone, as a conservative, who is skeptical of, of Trump and, and has been skeptical, skeptical of Trump. But you cannot create the Trump economy. You cannot attract in that 74 million votes more black and brown voters than Republicans have seen in a very, very long time. You cannot deny opportunities and some of the things that Trump did as president. The unfortunate thing is all of that now carries an asterisk beside it for the rest of his, how he's remembered, certainly in history. So I, I, I think that there is something about Trump, when Tom mentions that we're pissed off, and I agree, that's a highly academic term for how we're feeling. <laughs> we're, a country, we're a little angry and upset. We look at our neighbor and say, it's your fault. We engage in road rage. There's a series of things about our collective behavior that's troubling. And it's because of the fact that we are pissed off. And that's precisely what Donald Trump tapped into against the elitist establishment of the Democratic Party in Hillary Clinton. Now, remember, Hillary Clinton looks like Barry Goldwater compared to the parade of Democrats who campaigned with Joe Biden, uh, including Kamala Harris, for the nomination this time. I, I think it's a very interesting point. Joe Biden, in many ways, did become the most electable candidate. And as we all know, in party primaries, electability rarely trumps ideology. In this particular case, I do think the party settled on Biden because they wanted Trump out 
And somehow all of that collective elitism was able to sort of get behind Uncle Joe as a guy who could either Trojan horse his way through this or lead his way through this so that Democrats were more palatable for more people. And that's precisely what they did by agreeing on this consensus candidate of Joe Biden. Ted, do you think anybody else could have beaten Trump other than Biden? Yeah, in, the, in that field, I don't think so. And, and I, I mean, to the point that was just made, Joe Biden won the primary because he convinced the majority, the vast majority of Democratic primary voters that he could hold together the coalition, the, the Obama coalition of, of multiracial voters um, and win back some of the white working class voters that Hillary Clinton lost. And no one else in that field could make that argument. Uh, and I, I think Biden understood it. He withstood the storm in Iowa and New Hampshire and rode it into Super Tuesday in the southern states and was able to um, to essentially attract the pragmatic centrist voters, more conservative voters relative to the progressive wing of the party, that he was the most viable and electable person. But sort of going back to what was just said, I, I think the lesson of Donald Trump's presidency isn't that the, this election was so close. Again, I think hyper-partisanship as it sits in the country now suggested that whoever ran for the Democratic, on the Democratic side and whoever the Republican president was, it was gonna be a close election. But what Trump showed us is how to win a primary, especially when the field is so crowded. And that was where his appeal, I think, had its most resonance and sort of did, it was most disruptive is in the primary system. His governance style, to, to the extent that it existed, was uh, sort of a, a common touch with the average American, but governance was happening thanks to Senate Republicans. And so all of the gains the Trump presidency saw is, is a result of really of Mitch McConnell and what Senate Republicans were able to do, not because Donald Trump is an ideologue that had a conservative disposition and had these things laid out up front. He was able to har harness the anxieties and the uncertainties of Republican primary voters and carry that to the nomination and I think understanding that the hyperpartisanship within the nation would mean most Republicans would get behind the Republican nominee, whoever it was, just as in this past uh, Democratic primary, Democratic voters got behind whoever the Democratic nominee was, even if Biden wasn't to their, their liking. Yeah, I want to talk about that hyperpartisanship more in a moment. But first, I want to go to something you just said and ask Mimi. Trump did do a remarkable uh, or pull off a remarkable feat in 2016. How likely are Republican voters to stick with him if he runs in 2024? I'm not sure Republican voters are going to stick with him based on what happened on January 6th. I mean, I am a true blue Republican. I should say a true red Republican. I've been one since I was 18 years old, but one person does not make the party. Elected officials come and go. And I think most Republicans are Republicans because they believe in the philosophy and the, the values of Republicans and the policies they stand for. And I think Donald Trump had his time. I, if January 6th had not happened and the storming of the Capitol with his supporters had not happened, I think he would have a much better chance in 2024 to be the nominee. But I think people like myself are upset at what happened and feel that it's time that Donald Trump, you know, goes to Mar-a-Lago and plays golf and let another uh, candidate emerge as our nominee. Pat, how do you react to that? Not what you want, but what you foresee. 
Well, I, I think that if Donald Trump doesn't look at, I think Donald Trump is for all of his indefatigable fight, and that's been the nature of this guy. He'd fight with his shoes in the morning if they'd sit still and stand for it. I just don't know how much energy at his age he's ready to try to go win that lottery again, because I think that that's going to be a difficult thing to do. I also think that uh, you can't beat something with nothing. We've yet to define what we're going to be as a party post-Trump, similarly to how the Democrats have had to try and sort out and figure out what it is they wanted to be after Hillary Clinton. Uh, my sense of this is that even if Trump isn't around, there will be Trump-like people, but they will never be Trump. Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are not Donald Trump. And so I'm not sure that that is uh, transferable or, or portable to another personality. Trumpism, for whatever it, it was or is, was unique to the persona of Donald Trump. The question now becomes, what do Republicans begin to sort of fill in where we're going with? I don't have an answer to that, but I don't think there's any shortage of people who'd like to be president. I tend to agree with Mimi. This is the party of Lincoln and Reagan. And it is horrifying for me, as I think it would be for those men, to sort of see some of what Trump has rocked. Not everything, but, but a lot. The discourse in this country has become so vile and so poisoned that we've got to find a way back to have, and by the way, that's not just on Trump's side. If you listen to Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, or let me go down the list, the toxicity in Washington, as the president's defense lawyers tried to show this morning, I didn't see all of it, I saw a little bit of it. it, it we are an equal opportunity toxic society here politically right now. So my answer, Bob, is I, I don't know if it will be Trump. If there will be a Trump-like persona there. Who that is, I don't know. But I think someone's going to have to come back. Uh, and the initials are probably someone like Nikki Haley, who I think has got her eye on this, served in the Trump administration, has outwardly come out yesterday and criticized the president, indicating that I believe he should be convicted. So that's what we got to sort out now. Actually, I think the Trump impeachment lawyers are worth every penny that Trump won't pay them. Uh, let, me, let, let, let me let me flip the discussion a little bit in terms of this hyperpartisanship. Uh, maybe I'll start with Thomas. Can the Biden administration and Democrats do anything, either in terms of policy or the way they communicate, to reach some of these Trump voters? I'm thinking of JFK after the 1960 election, coming in in '61, introducing the Appalachian Redevelopment Act which provided enormous help to places like West Virginia and cemented them, by the way, as Democratic bastions for a long time. Yeah. Is there something, is there something that Biden can do? Oh, of course. This is, look, you know, we, we, we talk about, about big changes and the shifting of the tectonic plates and all that sort of thing. But at the end of the day, if Biden delivers COVID vaccine in the next three months and gets the economy roaring again, this country will love him forever. There's no doubt about it. Uh, you know, look, that sort of thing still pay. It, it still works. That kind of that kind of, of of you know, basic politics still works, in my opinion. But I want to, you know, the the last question is is Trumpism dead? I just want to throw it throw in a thought here that you know this is going to be disappointing to all of you guys. It is not dead, and it is going to continue. You know, let's say Biden doesn't succeed in the way that I just described, and the Democratic Party continues sort of down the path blazed for it by Obama and, and, and Bill Clinton before him and, and you know, it continues in the direction that they've been going and they become more and more and more a party of the sort of uh, uh, affluent white collar uh, uh, professional 
elite. Yes, you're going to see a Republican Party that continues to, to use these kind of Trumpian, maybe not Trump himself. My feeling about Donald Trump was always that he was a terrible politician, that he really got lucky in 2016. I mean, this is a guy that went down. It's like, do you remember Newt Gingrich in the contract with America where he had a little punch card? Do you remember that? And he's like, I did this and this. It's like Trump had one of those of all the different ethnic groups in America and he insulted them all. Like what kind of politician does something like that? He, this is, he was a, a dreadful politician who somehow, well, we can talk about that some of the time, how he figured out what to say and what to do. But the Republican Party saw that. He delivered Ohio, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin and Michigan, right? Which, you know, that's incredible. They're, they're going to, of course, they're going to continue where he left off, probably with someone that knows what they're doing, who's not such a foolish, you know, leader like him. But if you're thinking not just about the Republicans, but about what Biden can do, he's the first president in a long time who didn't go to an Ivy League school uh, at all. He likes to talk about being Scranton Joe. Yeah. Can he translate that? either in terms of communicating with a lot of these folks or in terms of policies that help them beyond just COVID relief and the economy. Because we had a big economic recovery before, and it just left whole portions of the country, what people call flyover country. Yes, well, you're talking about my people there. Come on now. <laughs> they don't like that. But yeah, absolutely. You're absolutely right. The thing is, will he even try? I mean, when was the last time you heard Democrats come up with a like a good plan for reviving farm country? I mean, it's been a lot like Jimmy Carter. You'd have to go back that far. Yes, it, he could do it. Absolutely. And he has the personality. You know, he's got that in his favor. Uh, look, I have been burned so many times by being hopeful about Democrats that I'm not going to do it here. I, <laughs> I just want to say it is possible. It is possible, but I'm, I'm not going to hold my breath. I'm going to jump in for a second, if that's okay, because I sure. just want to make a comment about Biden's, you know, some of his first decisions as president, you know, canceling the XL pipeline has now irritated the unions, uh, costing 11,000 jobs. And those typically would be people that would be Biden supporters. But by that act alone, now he's going to have a lot of people that are upset with um, losing their job. So right out of the gates, I don't think he's capturing those very people that Trump took from the Democrats when he ran for office. And that's something I think um, the Democrats need to be mindful of. Uh, and Joe Biden needs to be mindful of. Ted, do you think it was a mistake to cancel the XL pipeline? Not a whole lot of people are following all of the executive orders that Biden is signing. Um, we do because, you know, this is this is our world. But the average American isn't. And so the narrative that gets out about whether, generally speaking, these orders he's signing are good or bad will largely depend on the information sources through which people are hearing about them. And we know that our information sources are wildly apart, depending on what station you listen to, what papers you read. So the question of bipartisanship, I, I, Joe Biden, it's, it's not a question of can, it is must. If you believe that 74 million people who voted for Donald Trump are irredeemable and can never be reintegrated into American society, you do not believe in America. And if you believe that 81 million people who voted for Joe Biden are, um, are sort of big pro-government people who, who will run the country into the ground uh, before they see it rise, then again, th th this is not the America that you, like, you don't believe in the American experiment. So he has to bring people together, which is to say the people must insist that our elected leaders uh, sort of 
usher us back to a country where unity is important, where solidarity is important, and where demonization of the other side falls, falls by. One quick example, in Florida uh, just last year, 66% of Floridians, or nearly two-thirds, voted for reenfranchising folks who had been, uh, who voting rights had been taken away from them because they'd been convicted of a felony. And the people, through direct democracy, asked for this to happen. Democrats, Republicans, rural, urban, black, white, Hispanic, two-thirds of Floridians wanted this. And it's not yet been implemented because the state governor and the state assembly have blocked implementation of this. So this is an example of the expressed will of the people wanting one thing and then the government bickering, preventing that thing from happening. So the question isn't whether or not Biden can heal the, the divide or close the divide between Democrats and Republicans. It's can he appeal to the public who are screaming to government what they want to see and compel the public to force their elected officials to basically govern as if they get their power from the consent of the governed, like the declaration suggests. Yeah, and of course, we don't even have the same basic information. We have different sources of information. That's Some right, people maybe right. say we lose 11,000 jobs if you cancel the pipeline. Other people say, no, you only lose 1,000 jobs. There seems to be no common knowledge base from which we operate. Pat, you want to comment on this? So now the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You know, the old adage that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. This is regardless of party. Uh, when a party is controlling the government, which is exactly what Georgia race did to the Democrats. Um, that makes Joe Manchin singularly the most important man in Washington, <laughs> number one. Uh, number two, I think it also, uh, if you look at the way Joe Biden's behaving from a policy standpoint, there's a very real calculation here. I think they look at the first couple of years of the Obama presidency, when Barack Obama's party held both the House and the Senate, and believed that perhaps maybe President Obama was a little too timid. Well, Joe Biden didn't tim it at all. Uh, the number of executive orders and the, what I would call, progressive overreach from him are delivering real well to that side of the party. The question becomes in the midterms, will, in fact, the effect of the party out of power do what it usually does? Do Republicans pick up, to Mimi's point, you know, they were supposed to take enormous numbers of new seats in the uh, Congress. They didn't. Senate was very, very close. Why did the Senate uh, uh, tip Democrat in Georgia? Well, because that was, that was Trump's first act of insurrection. Uh, the next one was the one on the Capitol. But Donald Trump basically said to Georgia Republicans, don't bother because your votes don't matter. Frankly, if you look out and, and, and see some of the polling that was done, many Republicans were parroting that. Well, it's a fixed, it's a rigged thing. Why does it matter? I don't need to vote. I mean, this is a guy who killed... Uh, Mitch McConnell's ability to at least hold the government in check. We in America talk a lot about unity and we want to get together. That's a lot of hoo-ha. I, I hate to say this. It's a wonderful ideal. But in America, we kind of like divided government. We like an accelerator and we like a break. And that's one of the reasons why in midterm elections, we tend to correct if one party is, is getting sort of going lurching too much in one direction or the other. Each time Joe Biden continues to move the country left toward too much progressive uh, policy, I think it allows some Republicans, and we're going to see this behavior, unfortunately, I believe in uh, uh, a lack of conviction against the president. I think he should be convicted uh, in the Senate. But every single day it allows Trump or the successor to Trump or those in the party who don't trust elites and progressives 
to sort of get back into their corner. And that's just the way politics goes. Good politics is good. Bad politics is bad. Both sides are capable of either. As you might expect, I probably don't agree. I definitely don't agree with you. Running some kind of far left policy. I think if you look at the numbers in the polling, well north of 50%, sometimes well north of 60% of the country agree with almost all of what he's done. We'll see how that plays out over time. This could be three. Just one quick thing. And I don't want to, I'm going to say this very quickly and let the others respond. Joe Biden's biggest problem right now is that he's at odds with himself. Public schools in this country should be open. Parents need them open. When the president talks about moms who can't go back to work, that's a real thing. One of the reasons they can't go back to work is there are parents at home, particularly women, who are trying to educate their kids. His biggest supporters are teachers unions. Teachers unions have resisted going back to work despite the science. How does Joe Biden square that circle? I I find that to be one of his biggest challenges, particularly with white suburban women, which is going to be hard for Republicans to ever win back unless Joe Biden continues to behave this way. Yeah, the CDC this morning, I I assume you know, issued guidelines for the reopening of schools, said they want to get it done, and it's more important to reopen schools than restaurants. But I I want to keep talking, if we can, about some of the demography of this, go back to a point that Thomas made, and then asked the flip side about Republicans. Uh, Democrats seem to be losing among the white working class, uh, although Biden did narrow the margin there from 2016. Uh, Democrats did much better. Biden did much better in suburban college-educated areas, and as you just suggested, Pat, among suburban women. And I think you're absolutely right that Trump drove voters away from the GOP, those kind of voters, And that was certainly a significant factor in tipping a state like Georgia in the Senate races and in the presidential race in a state like Arizona to Biden. But as you look at the future of the Republican Party and the Trump character of the party, if it retains that character, aren't they in something of a demographic cul-de-sac that, you know, what my friend Stan Greenberg calls the rising American electorate is increasingly going to be different from... The Trump, it's, it's different from the Trump coalition. It's going to make it tougher for Republicans to win. Anyone, anybody I'll, want to I'll start since I'm the only female on the, uh, on the panel here, and I am a suburban uh, mom and woman. I, I think that the reason Donald Trump lost the suburban woman was primarily because of his rhetoric. Listen, we are moms. We're raising our children. We're raising our children to be respectful. And the rhetoric that the president had come in out of his mouth was just not acceptable. Now, you see it both on the Republican side and the Democrat side. But the difference is he was the president of the United States. We were taught as young people to respect the president and to look up at the president. And when you're a mother, And you are raising your children to respect the president. And then you hear the tone and the words coming out of his mouth. You are completely turned off because you do not want your child to um, follow along with that type of behavior. And that, I believe, is one of the main reasons he lost the, the woman vote in the suburbs. Now, having said that, will Republicans get them back? Absolutely. If if Biden doesn't open up the schools. Uh, and if he continues to kowtow to the unions, the 
suburban woman is going to rise up and said, enough is enough. I need my children educated. And that's how the Republicans will uh, get back the um, suburban woman. Uh, Tom, do you want to respond to that? And and are the Republicans heading into a demographic cul-de-sac? Well, that's been the argument for a long time. Uh, You know, I remember I, I had it explained to me over dinner here in Washington in Oh gosh, like 2008, and the and the and the 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 term of art back then was the coalition of the ascendant. Do you remember that? And the idea was that as demographics uh, shifted in this country, the Republican coalition would get smaller and the Democratic coalition would get bigger. The problem is that that breeds a certain complacency, as we've all, <laughs> as we've all seen, where the Democrats tend to they they just take their voters for granted and they don't do anything. They don't they don't uh, you know they don't they don't uh, they don't do anything for them. And this is a, a, a tremendous uh, source of frustration with sort of democratic rank and file voters. I want to tell you a story, Bob. It goes back to what's the matter with Kansas. So I grew up in a place called um, a suburb of Kansas City, Missouri, that's actually in the state of Kansas. It's called Johnson County, Kansas. And uh, I grew up in a very affluent little corner of Johnson County, Kansas. My family weren't particularly rich, but the people around us are some of the richest people in America. And they were, I mean, when I was a kid, these were the most Republican people in the world. I mean, they voted for Barry Goldwater in my neighborhood, something like 70% for Barry Goldwater over Lyndon Johnson. They're that kind of people. And I went back and looked it up and they had voted Republican in every election back to the year 1916. That's the last time they went for a Democrat. It was Woodrow Wilson. Again, these are like this is the ruling class of Kansas City. This is the ruling class of the state of Kansas. These people that I grew up among, and they flipped this year. They went for Biden for the first time since 1916. And this is this is not a one-off. This is the point that I that I that I want to make. This has been happening gradually for years. This is this is the one part of the electorate that the Democrats do serve and they do care about and they they do everything they can, you know, to please. This is your sort of affluent white collar professional class suburbanites and they have been reaching out for these people ever since as you know this Bob ever since uh like the new politics days in the 70s. Uh, you know, the Atari Democrats. And after that, the Democratic Leadership Council with their great idea of the learning class. They've been reaching out to these people in all sorts of different ways for a very long time. And that is finally paying off. Now, here's the funny, and it looks great, right? Biden won, right? Hooray. The thing is, I think that this is inherently a, um, A, it's a losing strategy because the, you know, this leaves the field open for the Republicans to organize everywhere else if they ever get their heads on straight and figure out to not be, you know, the Republicans figure out to not be racist and stuff like that. They're going to have a field day. Second of all, and this is, I want to talk about this in more detail later. We're in a situation in this country where, and this is happening in a lot of the Western, you know, a lot of the Western world you know, where you have a middle-class society and you no longer have a real party of the left, a party of the Rooseveltian left, that ended, right? The Democrats moved away from the New Deal, stopped doing that. This, you know, happened in the Clinton years, stopped doing that sort of thing. And we are left with a party of the left that is not interested in the traditional mission of left parties. And that has all sorts of consequences other than just winning and losing elections. Yeah, a couple of things here. Um, One... The changing demographics of the country is a real thing. The changing demographics of the electorate is a different thing. And so for as much as the as the nation is changing in terms of its racial and ethnic makeup, the electorate in 2020 was still 75 percent white. 
So the idea that just by the changing uh, face of the country, that's going to result in national elections, uh, the, the outcomes being different, is that the, the two dots don't connect that directly. So, um, so that's one piece. The other part of it is, as the nation changes, it's not happening equally everywhere. And so based on how, again, how we elect presidents through the Electoral College, um, it, it matters where the electorate is diversifying and where the electorate is homogenous, because that tells you, gives you at least a, a pretty good clue on who is going to vote for whom. And so the Republican Party is not on in its death spiral yet, even with the changing demography of the nation, because we don't have a popular vote system and because um, the, the voter participation rates across different races and ethnicities are not equal. They're not the same. Some groups turn out more than others. So this is how the party can remain viable, uh, assuming that the Electoral College stays as it is and assuming that voter turnout remains about as it's historically been, which is white voters turning out at a much higher rate. The last thing I'll say is the reason Georgia was such a surprise is because the voter turnout rate among people of color exceeded what most, fo most folks thought would happen, exceeded historical, historical trends in a year where voter turnout nationally was the highest it's been in 120 years. So those two things had to happen to swing that state. It wasn't because the nation's changing. It was because we were in an anomalous moment, uh, political moment, that the, that the uh, Democratic Party in the state of Georgia was able to capitalize on. Okay, I want to say I don't want to see the Democratic Party in a, or the Republican Party in a death spiral. I don't want to me see either. Yeah, so, so I'm going to ask one last question, and then we're going to turn this over to the audience. And you can each have a crack at this. My view is that for America to remain a healthy democracy, we need two governing parties, probably one center left and one center right. After all, sometimes the other party is going to win. Have we lost the relative balance of the two parties that largely predominated in American politics up through 2012? And is there any prospect that balance is going to return? Mimi, you want to start? Listen, I don't think we've lost the balance. I think we, you know, oftentimes parties will go from either to the far right or to the far left, just depending on the circumstances. I mean, we saw that uh, after Obama was elected, you had uh, the Tea Party on the right formed. And uh, then uh, after Trump uh, got elected, you had the progressives really have a big say in the Democrat Party. So the two party systems tend to lean to the far right or the far left, just depending on on who's in office. Um, I agree with you, Bob. A, a two party system is what we need to to have in this this country, uh, and um, I'm sure it's it's going to continue. Yeah, I, I agree. But we definitely need a two party system. Um, here's the caveat I would make, and, and here I'm stealing an argument from my buddy Lee Drutman, who's a political scientist and just wrote a book about this. We need two parties. But both parties cannot be uh, homogenous in their ideology and polarized with great distance between one another. We need conservative Republicans and centrist Republicans, and we need centrist Democrats and progressive Democrats, which is to say we need two parties within each party such that you can vary your coalitions depending on the issue, where Democrats can get pragmatic centrist Republicans on some issues and Republicans can get blue dog, the old blue dog Democrats on other issues. And in this way, everyone's not just doing party line votes, but they're doing ideological votes. Now, this is a bit of a, a, a Pollyannish dream, I, I, I recognize, especially 
in our primary system that rewards the polarization and not the pragmatism and working together. But if we want our democracy to be well-functioning, then the parties are gonna have to have some heterogeneity within the parties in order to ensure cross-party coalitions can be built and then uh, allow for better governance. Pat and then Tom. We sell ourselves short of what you learn from this four years of Donald Trump by suggesting that uh, either party purely represents themselves. Look, when I first saw Donald Trump playing with politics, when he was a game show host on NBC and showing up in New Hampshire and Iowa years ago and espousing birther theories about President, President Obama, look, Donald Trump wasn't even a Republican. Never mind a conservative. Donald Trump wasn't even a Republican. Let's remember the purity of candidate is no longer you were mayor or town councilor and then you run for uh, governor and then you run for Senate and you prove yourself. We see candidates like Trump, again, and particularly in the Republican Party. Bob, you and I have had this discussion. Our party has always been the party of whose turn it is. We like Romneys and Nixons and Fords and Nixons and Reagans and Reagans and Bushes and Bushes and Bushes. To win the Masters, you have to have lost the Masters up until the time that Donald Trump came from actually virtually nowhere. Think about Hillary Clinton. She was the antithesis sociologically of what Democrats always were. Democrats are always RFK, the party of the future. Tomorrow, let's go to space. Let's do something new and exciting. Democrats always have better cocktail parties than Republicans because they're always about tomorrow, not yesterday. And they would forever be searching for the Scarlett O'Hara of a candidate, someone young and interesting, an African-American senator from one term, an obscure governor of Arkansas who suddenly came from nowhere and became president of the United States. Hillary Clinton, uh, frankly, and with all due respect, the only thing that's been in Washington longer than she is the monument. At the bottom of the, the whole sort of thing here, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump switched sides. The Republican Party found someone new, you could say maybe not interesting, but certainly different. And the Democrats went back to exactly what they did this time. Joe Biden. I mean, Joe's a nice guy, but the president is not exactly fresh or new or about tomorrow. So I think that what we're going to have to see here is what is the next iteration of Democrats? Is it Kamala Harris, which is an interesting whole new story to the Democratic Party? Is it Donald Trump? Or does someone step in differently who can fill Donald Trump's shoes without all of the bruises and bashing that all of us have had to undergo? I ha can't help the commenting, Pat, that I always worry when somebody begins a sentence with all due respect. <laughs> uh, Tom, you, you want to take a last crack at this? Yeah, yeah. That, that, How do we assure ourselves that we have two governing parties? Listen, Bob, I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not gonna I'm not worried about the the health of the two parties. They are the system is locked in, and and they're always they're always going to be with us. What I what I am worried about is that larger thing that I mentioned before. You know, we've got a situation where the Republican Party has been moving to the right and to the right and further to the right for a long time. And they're constantly testing the boundaries, like, can we push a little bit further? I think they finally, by the way, hit a hard boundary with the events of January the 6th. But they've been doing this for a long time. And you have the, uh, the party, the traditional party of the left in our system, which uh, in the Clinton years decided that's not what it wanted to be anymore. And they basically gave in on the Reagan agenda, right? And they, they got in on deregulating Wall Street, on the free trade agreements, such as they're called, on the um, 
you know, the balanced budget, uh, mass incarceration, et cetera, et cetera, and adopted a, a kind of uh, Republican light agenda. And they've never looked back from that. I mean, that, that, that's who they are. And so the question that I always ask, and this is the question that I think underlies everything I've written about politics, is what does it look like when a great middle-class society like ours no longer has a traditional party of the left? And we know what that looks like sociologically. It's all around us. It's incredible, towering inequality. You know, it's uh, financial crises, one after another, bailouts for these guys. It's... Uh, is toleration for monopoly. You're out there in California. I mean, the, the kind of monopolies that the Silicon Valley firms have rolled up would have been unthinkable when we were kids, right? Because the Democratic Party would have stepped in and busted those guys up as they did in like, I remember the book publishing when it went from like 13 book publishers in America to 12. <laughs> the antitrust people were like knocking on the door the next day. This is in the late 1960s, right? But that's, you know, that, never, that doesn't happen anymore. And you, you go right down the list. The, the deindustrialization of my part of America, you know, of the, of the whole center part of America, all of these things become, have happened because we no longer have a functioning party of the traditional left. Now, it's, you know, they're still going to be all right. They're still going to win from time to time. Maybe they'll even rule. But uh, th th these problems are going to go on, and they're going to make Trumpism and versions of Trumpism inevitable. All right, let's turn this over to questions. We went a little longer than I thought we would, but it was, it's so fascinating. Well, thanks, everyone, for submitting their questions in the Q&A. Uh, how's the QAnon faction of the Republican Party going to affect the future of conservatism? QAnon and Proud Boys and the, the, the promise keepers and the promise givers and... Uh, all of these people on the right are equally represented on the left. Um, to suggest the right is run by QAnon is to suggest the left is run by Antifa. That's not, that's not true and not fair. It is unfortunate, and it's a real problem. And if you look at the tape from the Capitol on January 6th, you begin to realize who these people were. Uh, these, were not your, these were not your traditional Republicans. These are not conservative uh, movement conservatives who you know left the golf course to storm the capital this is a different group of folks they are unfortunately byproducts on both the left and the right we have seen an extraordinary amount of uncivil discourse and behavior in this country and it, it's not just on the right but it certainly is there it's been on the left as well and to ignore that would be an unfortunate way not to learn something from this we can blame trump is it Trump's rhetoric that's raised the Democrats' rhetoric that's caused these groups, these fringe groups with these crazy conspiracy theories who behave in ways that are absolutely the antithesis of what our democracy is about? I don't know the answer to that, but I, I, it's a little bit of a loaded question, Erica, because I think that both sides are going to have to deal with the most unappealing of characters who are sometimes drawn to this. At the end of the day, I don't believe that QAnon or Antifa control votes in this country, and ultimately the voters and our democratic process, if it is preserved and protected, uh, will continue to make the right choices about who to put into office. Yeah, I, I, I'm going to just weigh in and say, I think the equation of QAnon with Antifa is far-fetched. Antifa is kind of disorganized mess, and QAnon was very involved with the Proud Boys in almost overthrowing the system by which we've lived for 200 years, the democratic system by which we've lived for more than 200 years. 
So I think it is, Joe Biden is not going to have any truck with Antifa, with, with people on the far left. And Donald Trump is the guy who said, there are good people on both sides. So I just take a different view. I'm going to use that term with all due respect, because you know I respect you, and I do. I'm sorry, let's forget about what happened this summer. Let's look at what's happening in Portland right now. I mean, we continue to have this completely unacceptable level of violence in this country from folks that are not about solving the problem. They don't want to be constructive about this. They want to blow things up and set things on fire. And I will tell you that that's an equal opportunity offender. There are people on the left who do that and people on the right. It's a bad thing for our country and bad for democracy. But it's not a one-party problem. And I think both I think both sidesism is bad for discourse and bad for figuring out what's going on in the country. I'll let somebody else say something and then let's go on. To the yeah, next. very, very quickly. I, I would just say uh, that conservatism is an ideology. And I don't think these QAnon folks have an ideology that isn't attached to uh, anti-democratic principles, illiberalism, r- high levels of racial resentment, probably some monos- misogyny in there. So QAnon is not conservatism, but QAnon latched on to the Republican president who ruled by cult of personality and was willing to take anyone in under his wings that was willing to praise him and not uh, critique him for anything. So there's that. that. That is a real issue because there is a sense somehow that uh, pissing off the Proud Boys or this this sort of fringe element could lead to being ostracized uh, from the party or or losing primary elections because you'll be primary from someone to your right. And frankly, we've got members of Congress now who subscribe to some of this QAnon stuff. No one wants to get primary by a person like that. So there's that. The way out of this is principled leadership that isn't afraid to risk their political career to do what's right, to say, I don't want any support from these people. I don't agree with what they think about America or about Americans. And if I lose an election because they think I'm a a traitor and treasonous or whatever, then so be it. But I will lose an election with my principles intact. Principled leadership matters more than I think a lot of the political system gives it credit for, because sometimes it requires being a uh, to, to sacrifice your political career in the process in the process and, and frankly if you believe in the country that has to be a sacrifice you're willing to make as opposed to appeasing this this uh, really odd and fringe element that is completely anti-american at its core unless somebody feels compelled we'll go on to the next question all right so this question is from gretchen leach uh, she directed it to thomas frank but you know, i'm sure you know you can all weigh in as well uh she wonders if you can talk about uh, about the democratic socialism, so Bernie Sanders, AOC, and whether the establishment Democratic Party would be wise to embrace it, especially in light of the right's alternate version of populism. I voted for Bernie Sanders in the primary. Uh, I thought he would. I thought he'd make a great president. How should I put this? I think that uh, I, I was completely puzzled by the hostility to him. I d- I never got it. I never really understood that because to me he seemed he's very he's very similar in my mind to Joe Biden. They're I mean they're personal friends and all this sort of thing, but they're also you know they're these grandfatherly figures. They're kind of gruff and lovable, you know this sort of thing. And I never understood the hostility to Bernie. And I've I, I've thought about that for a long time because I, I know plenty of well, how should I put it, like elderly conservatives, elderly Republicans who would probably vote for someone like Bernie Sanders because, you know, he's a a voice from from long ago. You know, there's something very reassuring about him. And also, of course, there's the question of universal health insurance, which looks pretty goddamn good in a 
in this are COVID. <laughs> but I, I, what I finally, uh, I mean, the, the mystery to me is why people dislike him so much. Um, you know, because I, I don't understand that. And I think that a lot of it is because he represents a kind of rejection of the generational project of the sort of Clinton, you know, the Clinton people. This is, he represents a, a, a sort of a kind of, you know, a, a vision of the Democratic Party. I don't, you know, he often calls himself a socialist, which I don't really get because he seems like a straightforward, you know, new dealer to me, like, you know. Uh, you know, Henry Wallace or, uh, uh, you know, Harry Hopkins or something like that. But his politics seem like they would be extremely popular. But the, the hostility within the Democratic Party is is extraordinary. Anyhow, I could talk about this for a really long time, but I, 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 I somehow think I should stop. Yeah, I, I will just say when it comes to uh, African-American voters, 70 percent identify as conservative or moderate. And so um, pushing further towards the Democratic Socialist Party's list of policy preferences um, isn't an inherent winner for a lot of Democratic voters, especially in the primaries. And I think, you know, it's no secret that one of the challenges Bernie Sanders had both in 2016 and this year was trying to diversify uh, his coalition so that he could beat someone like Joe Biden. That said, um, Black voters care a lot about education and college is very expensive. Uh, black voters care a lot about health care and health care is very expensive. So it's not that um, there aren't places where there's a desire for more government intervention to ensure equality or, or uh, better prices. But it does suggest that adopting the, social, the Democratic Socialist Party's platform wholesale on the, for the Democratic Party to do so, that is not, um, it, that is not a, a surefire way of attracting more people to your, your camp or uh, holding together the coalition that, that currently exists. Uh, th there is an alternative folks could go to should the, the party continue to move left. George W. Bush on the inaugural platform looked at Jim Clyburn and said, you're the hero. You're the person who made this all happen. And Clyburn said, why? And he said, because nobody else but Biden could have beaten Trump. Now, I don't know if we all agree with that, but I don't think myself Tom, that there's an intense dislike of Bernie Sanders. I think there was a fear that he couldn't win. And in fact, there was a gathering consensus that Joe Biden was the most likely person to win. I think that's what happened. But Bob, I, I agree with you. I mean, I think Bernie's problem was that he was going too far to the left. And the Democrat Party was concerned that um, Americans didn't want to go that far. So the establishment sort of stepped in to make sure that Biden got that nomination. And uh, I agree, you know, he was the one person I believe that could have beat Trump. Isn't it great that the establishment was an African-American congressman named uh, from, from South Carolina? I mean, the country has come some distance. Uh, Erica, let's see if we have a question here about the Republican Party. Yes, I do. So this question's from Ben and Bryant. Uh, if there is agreement that Trumpism isn't going anywhere, what confidence do they have that an establishment Republican will be able to win a Republican primary in 2024? Pat, that seems right up your alley. <laughs> uh, I, I, you know, if I could figure that out, I, I'd probably be in another seminar today besides this one. Um, listen, I don't, as I said when we started the discussion, I, I'm not sure that any of the dust has settled on all of Quick aside, though, I, I, I want to deal with this question, but as a student of, of presidential politics and someone who's been involved in a lot of presidential campaigns, memo to Bernie and anybody uh, in, in, on the left or the right 
there's a time in a campaign when you just go a click too far. Suggesting that Fidel Castro may have been good for education was probably Bernie's uh, worst day. And everything went down from there. And he was a very easy guy to caricature. But that said, the future of where Republicans go now is going to depend on, I think, two very important things. One, is Trump allowed to continue to be active? That is to say, will he be barred from running for office again, i.e. impeached? And I think I've already said, I think that's unlikely. And I think that's unfortunate, but I think it's, it's probably the fact. And two, what do Republicans do afterwards? When Richard Nixon resigned in disgrace and Gerald Ford limped into the presidency, we went through a very tough period of time. And what did we get? We got Jimmy Carter. And after Jimmy Carter, we beget Ronald Reagan. And we see bits of strength in each of these parties, depending on the formative person who is the titular head of that party. Uh, the party can be weak, but the person oftentimes elevates and should elevate the party. We've got to find someone who can step forward, who is a, I believe, a conservative uh, for the Republican Party, someone who believes in conservative principles, Republican principles more than that, and can be the face going forward of the Republican Party. Someone has to say, here's what Trump did right. Here's the things he did wrong. Now we got to go forward somehow. And frankly, I'm not sure who that is yet, but I think that already there are folks out there casting about to do this. Um, the other question is, what role will Trump play in, as we said, hurting these midterms? We have sitting members of the United States Senate in our party who are pretty electable, who will be up in 2022. We have members of Congress who are eminently reelectable. Unless Donald Trump decides that he's going to make sure they're primaried by someone who's more loyal to him, that will be disastrous. Because what's going to happen is we're going to nominate candidates who can easily win their primaries, but cannot win general elections, even in the reddest of states in some cases. So, man, this is sort of all out there right now. I don't know what the future looks like, but I will tell you this. We're going to see some significant changes in the next six to 12 months inside of the Republican Party who tries to dissect. And we did this once before, if you all remember the great autopsy that Paul Ryan uh, led, where we talked about engaging black voters and Hispanic voters. And my goodness, let's reach, reach out to, uh, let's reach out to uh, women. Imagine that. Let's get more women involved in the party. And what we wound up with was the antithesis of that in Trump. That autopsy didn't tell us much. This one has to because the patient is in much more serious condition after what we've been through as a party, even than we were then. Anyone else or we'll move on? Okay, Erica. So this question is from Jill Fields. Beyond mot uh, voter motivations, she wants to hear about the voter mobilization efforts by the RNC. Trump rallies on their own didn't get out the vote to this extent. What get out the vote infrastructure did the RNC and state parties employ? Where was it most effective? What arguments were utilized nationally and regionally or on the district level? In the past, the RNC pioneered micro-targeting and the DNC pioneered mass online donations. Did the RNC innovate in 2020? Did they outperform the DNC? The only thing I will say, and it's just anecdotal, so I'm, I'm not a member of either party, so I can't speak to party strategy, but I will say that Donald Trump did quite well with Hispanics in Florida, Hispanic Americans in Florida. And um, from all of the reporting and political science literature I've seen, it's part of the reason for that shift is that the, Demo that the Trump campaign played um, 
basically married the Democratic Party to socialism. And that message sticks well with Hispanic Americans in Florida who escaped socialist countries to come here and, and have a very particular depiction of, of what social, socialist countries look like. So um, that work on Cuban Americans, Venezuelan Americans in Florida, even in Georgia, uh, Hispanic Americans, they're a much smaller part of the electorate, but Trump did better with Hispanic Americans in Georgia than, uh, than um, he had done in 2016, uh, and in parts of Texas as well. So micro-targeting is alive and well. We also know that in 2016, through the use of like gathering Facebook data, uh, th that the Trump campaign was able to target African-American voters, encouraging them not to vote at all, to just stay home. That is absolutely micro-targeting. And Black voter turnout for a range of reasons, not just for that micro-targeting, was down in 2016. Um, some of that had to do with Barack Obama not being on the ticket. Some of it had to do with other measures states were putting in place. So micro-targeting is alive and well, and tr the Trump campaign certainly put it to use in the last, at least the last uh, two elections, 16 and 20. Next question. All right. Can you all discuss the Black Lives Matter protests in conjunction with the domestic terror attack on the Capitol, the difference in the use of force, the difference in terminology, and the strength behind the word choice? Who wants to go first? I've been talking a lot, but I, you know, I, can, I can jump in. There's clearly, uh, look, number one, our media sources like the flashbangs. They, they like the conflict of armed officers and looters, rioters in the street at midnight with cars on fire. That's what dominates both the coverage from last summer as well as uh, what happened on January 6th. That is not the full story of what happened in, in either case. The horror of January 6th was because there was uh, a, a segment of the people who showed up in D.C. that day that decided they didn't want democracy to happen in the Capitol. And there was a very small segment of those who pro protested last summer who used that for opportunistic purposes instead of for racial justice purposes. And the caricatures of, of um, the racial justice protests last summer uh, was really unfortunate because the vast majority of them were peaceful. They happened in every state in the country for weeks on end. Black Lives Matter marches happening in Idaho and Montana with Republicans, Democrats, uh, folks across generations, across religions marching together. To me, that is a signal, a symbol of what America could be. And the fact that a lot of the news coverage we saw was the ugly stuff that happened when the lights went down and curfews were put in place by a very small percentage of folks that were participating in the, the protests is an unfortunate uh, feature of our media landscape. Now, how police forces responded to the two are certainly, I mean, they couldn't be more stark in sort of Capitol Police getting out of the way as barricades are thrown down compared to police in uh, actual previously used military gear uh, or, or military gear designed for the military and sold to police forces, preventing people from even going to Capitol steps and, and uh, places across the country. Th that matters. That matters that we don't tell the full story of what happened on both of those occasions and instead uh, rely on caricature for almost entertainment purposes that harms our democracy and harms our ability to have frank and honest discussions about the challenges the country faces. Listen, I think we have to be careful here. Anarchy is anarchy, period. Hard stop. A fire is a fire. An explosion is an explosion. Damaging property, hurting people, attacking cops, throwing bricks, pulling down barricades, trying to destroy public property, threatening public officials, burning down police stations. It's the same thing. I don't care what side it's on. Now, Black I, I, lives, but Pat, somebody put into the comments, and I think it ought to be said, 
the vast majority of the Black Lives Matters movement was not anarchy, and they weren't burning down police stations, and they were marching with Republicans. But, but Bob, that's, I think that goes without saying. There was an important movement in terms of what Black Lives Matter was trying to accomplish. And I think what I heard Ted say, because I know a lot of people uh, who, who are Republicans who were very much involved in believing that the idea of what Black Lives Matter was trying to communicate was extremely important. We needed to have that discussion. We needed to broaden people's understandings of why that movement took place. I don't agree with that. Well, I don't disagree with that one bit. But at the end of the day, when you have this kind of thing happen, there are people on both sides, even if they be a small number, who create uh, what is unfortunately the stuff that, as Ted said, cameras get attracted to. But it, it unfortunately overtakes the movement. And I don't care which side it's on. It's bad for our democracy either way. So with all, with, with, with all of that in mind, I think we have to remember that we've got to try to get back to some civil discourse in this country. Because there's too many things we can, I think, solve by talking about them, by sharing ideas. We can agree to disagree. Hell, Shrum, you and I have been disagreeing for a long time. And I do again. I do again, by the way, because you use the phrase both sides. On one side, the instigator was the president of the United States of America. Bob, I'm the first and, one to say that I were, started were, this conversation. Were, yeah, I, I, yeah, you know. But I would just say in, in the same way that we cannot collapse 74 million people who voted for Trump right. with the, in, the mob that, that tried to take over the Capitol, we cannot collapse the Black Lives Matter movement with the very fringe element that, that uh, took those opportunities for, to destroy property, to, to riot, and to sort of uh, allow opportunism to, to take over. So we, I think you're right. We just have to be very particular in how we talk about um, the, what's happening in the country and, and who's doing what. And by the way, words matter. Words yes. matter about how we have that discussion. And that's one of the biggest problems we're facing and we faced was the way people communicate with each other. Yes. Words uh, have to, words, the, the words have to change. Well, we're out of time. Can oh, we, we squeeze in one more question here, Erica? Oh, my goodness. Okay. Trump's personality has been such a turnoff to so many of the people who voted for him and yet many voted for him twice. What would compel African-American and Latinos to vote for someone who insulted them? What about white rural voters who were hurt by his agricultural policies? What is it about Trumpism that is legitimately appealing, not because voters are dumb, but the legitimate reason why he is appealing and that Democrats are missing? Thomas, why don't you, why don't you do that? Okay, so in the old days, I would have said that, that uh, because he uh, you know, he pretends to care about ordinary people in a way that they haven't heard from a politician in a long time. Uh, I would emphasize the word pretends. Uh, and I would also, in 2020, we know that, I mean, the, the main issue there was, was trade. Remember how we talked about that? Another was the, the opioid epidemic. What did he do on these things? Well, you know, very, very little. I would say uh, Trump is appealing because he, and he's not the only Republican to do this. Other Republicans have been very... There's this kind of uh, people call him a populist, which I strongly object to because he's not in the populist. Bob Shrum is in the populist tradition. Donald Trump is not. Donald Trump is a kind of phony populist. You know, he he pretends to be on the side of ordinary working people, salt of the earth, and he talks that way. But we all know that he doesn't mean it. 
he's totally and completely insincere. Nevertheless, it is attractive when that's the only thing, when that's the only form of like, uh, uh, that's the only, he's like a giant, you know, middle finger extended to the, the elites of this nation. You know, that's the, that's the appeal of this guy. And I'll just say for black voters, um, from 1968 through 2004, the presidential candidate or, or sitting president running in the election averaged about 11% of black voters nationwide. Uh, McCain only got 4%. Romney only got 6%. And Donald Trump, the first time around, I think got, um, you know, uh, I can't remember, it was maybe 8 or 9% or something like that. So the fact that he did a little bit better with black voters in 2020 doesn't represent anything about Donald Trump. All it is is black Republicans returning to the party after supporting the first black president in 2008 and 2012 and sitting out, uh, many of them sitting out 2016 because they didn't like the choices. So it's a reversion to the mean is the only thing we saw in 2020. There wasn't uh, anything about Trump in particular that brought new people, at least for black voters, into the tent. But remember so, this one thing, before the pandemic hit, we had the highest unemployment rate in 50 years for minorities under Donald Trump. And that has to be put into the equation of this because before the pandemic hit, the economy was doing terrific. The, the problem is, of course, people vote on the economy they have, not on the economy they used to have. And, uh, you know, that's, that's the, the conundrum that I think uh, Trump never managed to solve. What, one quick thing. I, I think that the, the sad part about Trump is uh, that Trump is easy. You know, he's easy. Trump takes a very complex thing and he tries to make it very simple. And, and he makes it, he, he doesn't intellectualize it. He's never been a guy to really understand it. I don't think he's a student of policy. I don't think he, I don't think he, he, he clearly doesn't have the temperament or capacity to take some of this stuff and digest it and think it through. Uh, Trump was a guy who basically said, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. Do you like that? Do you like that? Fantastic, it's fantastic. And, and people, unfortunately, I think in many cases, that doesn't mean they're stupid, it just means that Trump was providing an answer for something they were frustrated about. And they wanted something different and they wanted something maybe easier. And, you know, the bottom line is, if it sounds too good to be true, in any good grift, it probably is. And in Trump's case, even though he delivered us an historic economy, one, by the way, that is still chugging along in spite of COVID, uh, it, it turns out that ultimately for our democracy, it was a bit of a grift. That's a sad, sad thing. Let's hope Democrats and Republicans can learn from all of this. So I'm not going to comment. I'm just going to thank, with all <laughs> due respect, <laughs> Mimi, Ted, Tom, and Pat. And I want to say that the real question here is, how does the GOP get more than 74 million voters the next time around? Thank you all very much, and thanks to our audience. Thank you for joining us on The Bully Pulpit. It helps us a lot when you subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcast. Follow us on Twitter at USCPOLFuture. That's USCPOLFuture. Follow us on Facebook and YouTube and visit our website for upcoming programs.